Echoplex Media is live Wednesday through Sunday on Twitch. Shows start at 7 or 9 p.m. Pacific. You can get our whole schedule at echoplexmedia.com. Make sure to follow us, twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia. Enjoy the show. I'm dealing with people on a daily basis who are just happy to smear me dishonestly. This is the kind of thing that I would be tempted to score as bad faith. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their purses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I got everything I need. I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree. And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me. And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee. Just like my straight white male dad did to me. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. I've got a pile of broken mirrors and I'm walking under ladders and I'm spilling tons of salt, but to me that doesn't matter because my skin and my gender and my orientation are the best things to have if you live in this nation. I recommend it highly. Everybody, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree. We do the show live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Pacific right here on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media. If you want to support this show, there's a couple cool ways to do it. My favorite new way actually is at eplex.store. You sign up for a membership there and you get the exact same things you'd get at Patreon. Plus you get uh, a discount on your swag shop. That's eplex.store. And if you're already a Patreon user and you prefer Patreon, patreon.com slash Echoplex is fine. Also, you can go to echoplexmedia.com slash support, and there's ways there that you can just directly give us money or sign up for services. I think we have a few affiliate deals or something on there. Um, HK is out on adventures, so it's just me this week, Homo Alono here. I don't mind. I don't mind. There's been a, So there's this item that's been on our like list of things we were going to go over, and it's kind of in the weeds, and I've been kind of avoiding doing it, but I figure since I'm here by myself this week, um, I'll go ahead and do this. As you might have heard, before uh, American Tune by Panhandlers Union played, I had a couple Sam Harris drops. So, yeah, it's a Sam Harris episode. This is uh, Social Media and Public Trust, a conversation with Barry Weiss, who is famous for lying about why she left the New York Times. Uh, Michael Schellenberger, who I don't know uh, why he's famous. I think he's uh, just a grifter. And then uh, Renee De, De, De Resta, who I don't know who it is, but according when I read the comments, it seems like she might be, if it's a she, if Renee is a she, she might be the only person on here who isn't like a, a dumb grifter, but we'll have to see. 
anyway, what we got, what we always ask is at the beginning, is he going to do this? Cause that's really, you won't, there's the Sam Harris episodes are only really good if you get this. Okay. Let's see. Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Just a note to say that if you're hearing this, you are not currently on our subscriber feed and will only be hearing the first part of this conversation. In order to it, access it, this part, this part's an hour long. I think podcast, that's enough for us. You'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. There you'll find our private RSS feed to add to your favorite podcatcher, along with other subscriber only content. We don't run ads on the podcast, and therefore it's made possible entirely through the support of our subscribers. So if you enjoy what we're I would suggest here, against giving Sam Harris money. I don't think he's hurting for money. Give money to me instead. Today I'm speaking with Barry Weiss, Michael Schellenberger, and Renee DeResta. Barry is the founder and editor of the Free Press and host of the podcast, Honestly. But what about her fake university in Austin? Aren't you going to mention uh, University of Austin? <laughs> the one where I actually made a meme that people shared around a lot that said, like, University of Austin, if the staff was good enough for the kids at Epstein Island, they're good enough for your kids. From 2017 to 2020, she was an opinion writer and editor at the New York Times. And before that, she was an op-ed and book editor at the Wall Street Journal and a senior editor at Tablet Magazine. And I highly recommend that you sign up for her newsletter and check out what she's doing over at the Free Press. No, no, no. It's just all anti-trend shit. FP.com. Michael Schellenberger is the best-selling author of San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, and also Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Oh, that's right. He's famous for being a climate change denier and a person who would never leave a big city, but talks a bunch of shit about big cities. I forgot about that. Been called an environmental guru, a climate guru, North America's leading public intellectual on clean energy and a high priest of the pro-human environmental movement. He is the founder and president of Environmental Progress, an independent nonprofit research organization that incubates... Oh, yeah, if we're rooting for anybody, it's Renee, and it's a he. ...is leaders and movements, and a co-founder of the California Peace Coalition, an alliance of parents of children killed by fentanyl, as well as parents of homeless addicts and recovering addicts. And he also has a newsletter over on Substack titled Public. And finally, Rene DiResta is the oh, no. research manager. Oh no, that was all Michael Schellenberger. Manager of the Stanford Internet Observatory, a cross-disciplinary program of research, teaching, and policy engagement for the study of abuse in current information technologies. So the, the, he has like two fucking grifters and an and a academic who might be a subject matter expert on. Rene led an investigation into the Russian Internet Research Agency's multi-year effort to manipulate American society. And she has studied influence operations and, and Renee is a propaganda she. Okay. in the context of pseudo-conspiracies, terrorist activity, and state-sponsored information warfare. She's advised Congress, the State Department, and other academic, civil society, and business organizations. Oh, so she's CIA. She also regularly writes and speaks about these issues and is an ideas contributor at Wired and The Atlantic. And she appeared in the Netflix documentary you might have seen. The Social Dilemma. Cool. So this is a conversation about what I consider to be a, a very important issue. We focus through the lens of the so-called Twitter files. But so before we start, anybody who's not familiar with the Twitter files, the Twitter files 
or they're presented to you as a piece of investigative journalism. The problem is the only source for these so-called Twitter files is one apartheid Clyde, also known as Elon Musk, the uh, owner of Twitter. So anybody who's getting any of this uh, information is only getting what uh, the owner of Twitter, the current owner of Twitter, wants to give them. And the current owner of Twitter wants to smear the former leadership of Twitter. So what this is, is like, it's not investigative journalism so much as stenography. Conversation about the loss of public trust in institutions and the way social media seems to have facilitated that. And one thing you might hear in this conversation at various points is a tension between what is often thought of as elitism and populism. And I should say up front, in that particular contest, I am an unabashed elitist. But that doesn't mean what most people think it means. Well, because a lot of your audience thinks it means Jews, Sam. It's nothing to do with class or even formal education. It has to do with an honest appreciation for differences in competence, wherever those differences matter. When I call a plumber, I have called him for a reason. The reason is I have a problem I can't solve. Sam is stealing from the intellectual Dollar Tree. This is the one I fucking use all the time. I'm like, if your toilet's overflowing and there's shit all over the floor, you don't sense make about it. You call the plumber. I didn't know Sam listens to me. That's great. I don't know a damn thing about plumbing. So when my house is flooding with sewage. Yep. Look, it's exactly like I've said this like a hundred times. Sam is a fan of the intellectual Dollar Tree. And the Sam, if you're listening to this, you got plenty of bucks. Buy some shirts. It'd be funny as fuck if if you took a selfie of yourself wearing the shirt that we did with your, with a, an illustration of you on it that says Golden Girl under it. it. It'd go a long way towards mending some of the broken bridges between the intellectual Dollar Tree and the Making Sense podcast. Summer arrives. That man is my God. Jesus never received looks of greater admiration than I have cast upon my plumber in a time of need. And so it is with a surgeon or a lawyer or an airline pilot whenever there is an emergency. There is such a thing as expertise, and we are right to want it, because the alternative is ignorance and incompetence and needless suffering and untimely death. Without plumbers, we live in our own filth, and we've been doing that online for many years now, and it's getting disgusting. Of yeah, but you've been part of the problem. Sam Harris has been part of this problem. If Sam Harris had never had uh, Charles Murray on to like dig up that fucking <clears throat> uh, public discourse corpse or whatever, there wouldn't be all these race and IQ people running around. Saying that we should blindly trust experts. And I'm not saying experts haven't failed us in shocking ways, but we are shocked against a background assumption that expertise is a real thing and that our institutions have a responsibility to provide it. If you didn't think expertise was real, then there would be no basis to be disappointed when our most esteemed institutions fail to function. And of course, there are whole fields of pseudo-expertise. I've often criticized organized religion for this. You ask a Catholic bishop about the Holy Spirit or about the problem of human evil, and you will... You know what, if that... Okay, first of all, about the Holy Spirit, if that Catholic bishop has uh, 
some background in theology, they could explain the concept of the Holy Spirit to you, even you as a non-believer, in a in a way that maybe the average person on the street couldn't. So that is a kind of expertise. It's just that it's not expertise in something that the atheist or the non-believer thinks is real, but they still have some expertise in what their particular like flavor of Christianity believes. A lot of fake knowledge aimed at your brain. We could add a few branches of the humanities here. Like which one, Sam? Along with scientific results that don't replicate, but are still widely believed. Like what, Sam? And there are surely situations where real experts, thinking about real problems, can have their thinking distorted by bad incentives. It is absolutely true that institutions become corrupt. All of this is true, and yet none of this suggests that the solution to our problems is for everyone to just, quote, do their own research. Yo, but the problem is, Sam, that you're part of the IDW, and or you were part of the IDW, only left, actually, I think, when it started to become embarrassing for you, probably, like, Hollywood parties and shit, because people don't know Sam Harris is connected. Um, so you did have these long, drawn-out conversations about uh, things that you're not a subject matter in, and you did engage in what we call sense-making. You have engaged in all of this. Where's the mea culpa on this, Sam? Of course, now we have chat GPT, which would seem to make doing your own research more promising. Eventually, I think it will. I think that many things will become like chess. What's the best next move in a game of chess? Should you ask the best human player on Earth? Or should you ask a computer? The answer now is you should ask a computer. And that will be the answer for as long as computers are computers and we remain apes. I think many other areas of human. I mean, it, it depends on what program. Like, should you ask? Should you just ask your phone what next move? Like, it, it isn't really like that. These are like specialized computer programs. You don't just ask your computer what your next chess move is. That your computer is just going to sit there and do what it was doing beforehand because it's not running some program. Like, you have to have a program installed that can look at the chessboard, know what's going on. It isn't just you just ask a computer. I know I'm being like overly pedantic but here. Not yet. Someone on my team asked ChatGPT why I left Twitter, and it produced the following paragraph. Sam Harris quit Twitter in December 2018. I wish I had quit in December 2018. It took me four years longer than that. He cited the platform's inability to handle discussions about controversial topics without devolving into toxicity and harassment as the main reason for his decision. I agree with that, but that's not really what I said. At least I'm not aware of saying that anywhere. In a blog post... But if it's right, it's right. It doesn't mean... It, it, isn't, it didn't say it was quoting you. I don't even... It is chat GPT a they them? I don't know. I'm getting dangerously close to the joke. I'm going to shut up. Quote, Twitter is now one of the worst possible forums for the exchange of ideas. And that he had grown, quote, increasingly disturbed by the way the platform, quote, amplifies the very worst aspects of our culture. I'm actually not sure if those are accurate quotes from someone. I bet they are. Or not, but I definitely didn't write anything in a blog post. He also expressed his dissatisfaction with the way Twitter is used to silence dissenting voices and spread misinformation. After quitting Twitter, Harris continued to communicate with his audience through other means, including his website and podcast. Okay, well, it appears to know that I have a podcast. But it seems that our robot overlords haven't quite arrived yet. 
Oh no! You know what? Even the fucking even the fucking AI took Sam Harris out of context and didn't understand exactly what he meant. Imagine that. Even the fucking AI, man. Even the AI experts for a while. This point between elitism and populism comes down to the following claim: Not everyone's opinion is valuable. Right? On many many topics. My opinion isn't valuable. Yet you've opined very often. Shouldn't even have an opinion. Having a strong opinion when you know nothing about a topic—it's your political right, sure, but it's also a symptom of a psychological problem. Sam, Sam, check a mirror out sometimes. People becomes a social problem, and social media has been a vector of strong, divisive, unfounded opinions. And lies for over a decade. I mean, really. And here, and now I'm gonna have Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger on to discuss this problem. Get the fuck out of here. Have to react to that thing that AOC said about that thing that Tucker Carlson said about that thing the cops may or may not have done in a city you've never been to and will never go to, even if you live a thousand years. And then you need to respond to all the people who didn't understand what you meant, or who were just pretending not to understand what you meant. And you're gonna do this a dozen times a day. Including the AI, even the AI doesn't get it. But the rest of your life, oh, you're not going to do that. You're just going to watch other people do it every day, and then what? You're going to find your real life in between all of that scrolling. What an astounding waste of time that was. But the social consequences of our spending time and attention this way are well worth talking about. And the question of whether it's possible to build a social network that is genuinely good for us. Is a very important one, and those are among the topics of today's podcast. But I want you to keep a few distinctions in mind, because there's been an extraordinary amount of misinformation spread about what I think about free speech and content moderation and censorship online. So I just want to put a few clear landmarks in view. The first is that I absolutely support the right of anyone, anywhere, to say almost anything. I don't think people should unless it's about you and you don't like bad it. opinions. So, for instance, I don't think the laws against Holocaust denial that exist in certain European countries are good. As much as I agree that it's insane and odious to deny the Holocaust, people should be free to do it. You know, the, <clears throat> but the problem is, is it's not. It's not against like there's no law against you like in any of these countries at home telling your wife or your kids that you don't believe in the Holocaust. It's about public speaking. And we, I, at least I draw distinctions between what you say between people you know in private versus what you say in, as a public person. I will say things, I, don't, I'm, I try not to say racist things. I imagine I've said something racist before, but I will say things hanging out at the bar with my friends that I'd never say on here. Maybe jokes about myself. Um, like that's the, the, the public and the private are two different things do it on a social media platform must be decided by the people who own and run the platform. And here I think people should be generally free to create whatever platforms they want. So Elon now owns Twitter. I think he should be free to kick the Nazis off the platform if that's what he wants to do. That's the opposite of what he wants to do. Specific choices. He kicked Kanye West off the platform for tweeting a swastika inside a Jewish star. That's not, he kicked Conway, Kanye West off for tweeting an unflattering picture of Elon Musk. 
and making fun of the way Elon looks. Let's not get this twisted. I honestly doubt I would have done that. Wait, what? Can you really have a terms of service that doesn't allow for weird swastikas? That seems impossible to enforce coherently. But the point is, I what? think Elon and Twitter should be free to a weird their platform. Sam, that wasn't a weird swastika. That was a remix of the Star of David and a swastika that Kanye posted. Anyone who has seen both of those things could be like, oh, that's both of those things at once. It's like a turducken. You've seen a, a turkey, a duck, and a chicken. So you, you see a turducken, you're like, oh, that's a turducken. However they want. Conversely, I think a Nazi should have been free to buy Twitter and kick all the non-Nazis off the platform. I mean, that's closer to what Twitter happened. Twitter is a company. It should be free to destroy itself and to inspire competitors. And many people think it's in the process of doing just that. And it remains an open and interesting question what to do when the Nazis or the semi-Nazis start using your social media platform. You kick them off. And similar questions arise about people who spread misinformation or what seems to be misinformation. I mean, where is the line between necessary debate, which I agree we should have about things like how to run an election or vaccine safety, but where's the why should I <clears throat> why should I be debating vaccine safety? I'm a talk show host. In these things and simply making it impossible for people to cooperate when they really must cooperate. For instance, after an election, when you have a sitting president lying about the results being totally fraudulent or during a global pandemic, when the healthcare systems in several countries seem on the verge of collapse. There is a line here, and it might always be impossible to know if we're on the right side of that line. It's simply not enough to say that sunlight is the best disinfectant, because we have built tools that give an asymmetric advantage to liars and lunatics. We really have done that. Social media is not a level playing field. And the idea that we are powerless to correct this problem, because any efforts we make amount to, quote, censorship, is insane, it's childish, it's masochistic, and it is demonstrably harming society. But this is a hard problem to solve, as we're about to hear. As I said, we take the Twitter files release as our focus, because both Barry and Michael were involved in that release. How come the uh, person who worked at the, uh, who does academic work on uh, misinformation and the tr spread of information on social media wasn't given an, uh, access to these so-called Twitter files? <clears throat> of the three people you have on, the one person who might be qualified to take a look at this or get, get with their team and take a look at this, assuming they were given complete information, which I, I highly doubt, I feel like Elon was like, well, this is the information I'm going to give you and you're going to get popular from this. So. But it's interesting that the person who is, I guess, for lack of a better term, like a data scientist or a uh, uh, social media uh, manipulation analyst that's on this panel isn't one of the people who took a look into the communications inside of Twitter. I find that interesting. But the four of us speak generally about the loss of trust in institutions of media and the government. We discussed Barry and Michael's experience of participating in the Twitter files release the problem of misinformation, the relationship between Twitter and the federal government, Russian influence operations, the challenges of content moderation, Hunter Biden's infamous laptop, 
the need for transparency. Great. Is one of the people on here going to tell me what the Hunter Biden laptop story is? Platforms versus publishers, Twitter's resistance to the FBI, political bias, J.K. Rowling, the inherent subjectivity of moderation decisions. Why does J.K. Rowling have to come up in this? Platforms, rumors versus misinformation. How Twitter attempted to control the spread. Wait, isn't a rumor, if a, if a rumor is incorrect, it's just a, it's a type of misinformation. It's a subset of misinformation. What do you mean rumor versus misinformation? It's like Ford versus car. Information. The throttling of Dr. J. Bhattacharya. The failure of institutions to communicate COVID information well. The risk of paternalism. Abuses of power. And other topics. And now I bring you Barry Weiss. Michael Schellenberger, and Renee DiResta. Please be like, okay. Okay. I am here with Barry Weiss, Michael Schellenberger, and Renee DiResta. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, As I said, I I will have introduced you all properly in the beginning, but I, I was hoping we could have a discussion about the the Twitter files and social media generally and the failures of of the mainstream media and the government and other institutions to maintain public trust uh, and and perhaps the failure of them to be worthy of public trust. But I I think the the Twitter files is the right starting point here because uh, as luck would have it, we have Barry and Michael, both of whom were um, part of the, uh, the journalistic effort to reveal these files. Barry, the journalistic effort to reveal these files? Get the fuck out of here. That is not a journalistic effort. Elon Musk was like, here's some emails. These are the emails I'm giving you. That's not journalism. Motherfucker, that's public relations or maybe even stenography. Let's start with you. Perhaps you can really take it from the top and give us the the high-level description of what the Twitter files are and uh, how you came to be... um part of the the release. It's funny because this is one of those stories where I feel like for half of the country, it was the biggest thing that has happened (laughs) in the past decade. And the other half of the country had no idea it even existed. I'd say it was more like five to seven percent of people thought it was the biggest thing that ever happened. Most people aren't on Twitter. Most people don't give a fuck what's going on on Twitter. Um, and it was interesting to kind of test my family in Pittsburgh to find out which news sources they were reading and could tell you everything about the way they viewed the story. So basically what it is, depending on how you look at it, is Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, trying to, in his words, have a kind of informal truth and reconciliation commission. He understands that the platform that he just bought has lost a tremendous amount of trust with the public was claiming to Twitter ever a highly trusted public institution or something something quite different was also probably as he would frame it cooperating with the government in ways that would make Americans if they knew about it extremely uncomfortable was blacklisting people without their knowledge and all kinds of other details along those lines and so another group of people would say this is all about Elon Musk buying Twitter and trying to shame the previous owners of Twitter and the previous 
top brass at Twitter. Yes. And really what this is all about is embarrassment and vengeance. And where you fall on the answer to that question tells you a lot about where you stand politically, I would say, in general. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true. I, I feel like maybe because everything's a culture war issue now, it, it might be truer than it should be. But there's got to be conservatives out there who saw this shit and were like, wait a minute, you have a, you got this, you got this information from one source. And the source has clearly stated what their agenda is in putting out this information. You didn't see no Wall Street journalist reporter or Wall Street Journal reporters jumping on this, right? What are other conservative publications? The only one I can think of that is generally pretty good on factual stuff is the Wall Street Journal. Well, where was the why wasn't you know, where were the Wall Street Journal on this? They probably wouldn't have published any of this stuff. That's why you went with Substack bloggers. So Basically, what the mechanics of it were that Elon Musk decided to make available um, the inner workings of the company to a number of independent journalists. The first one that he reached out to was the journalist Matt Taibbi, who has a very popular newsletter. Then he texted me and reached out to me. Then I reached out to Michael Schellenberger. And then the group kind of grew from there. It came to include journalists like Abigail Schreier. Lee Fang, Leighton Woodhouse, and a number of other people associated with my company, The Free Press. Yeah, these are all like culture warriors. These are all culture war people. She's leaving out that they just kind of took his word for it, that what he gave them was the whole story. And that's like, that's why nobody from the Wall Street Journal was involved in this, right? That's why none of this was published in the hard news part of the Wall Street Journal, because their editors would have been like, did you verify any of this? What other reporting did you do? They'd be like, well, what do you mean? Elon told me. Oh, isn't that good enough? Elon told me. Oh, no, he gave me documents. He gave me files. You know, Elon gave them to me. What was said on Twitter publicly by Elon Musk is that we had unfettered access to all of the inner workings of Twitter. Everything from emails private Slack messages, group Slack messages, and on and on and on. And that was sort of the headline that was trumpeted all over Twitter and all over the press. In fact, what we had, and Michael can explain this probably in better detail than I can because he has a meticulous memory, we basically were able to do highly directed searches on at most two laptops between at times up to eight journalists in a room. So what we had the ability to Who's who? Wait a minute. Who? Where were they? Your laptops? Did Elon give you the laptop? Because I'm stuck. Yo, hey, here, don't, don't, no, don't, don't, no, no, no. Listen, you just have to trust me that when you search for things on these laptops I've given you, that you're going to find exactly what you're looking for without any bias. Get the fuck out of here. Did you was to say to a lawyer working through a laborious e-discovery tool, and it came to include two different tools. Tell me everything that happened between the following six C-suite level employees of Twitter on the dates between January 6th and January 10th, basically the dates that Trump got kicked off of Twitter. And basically over the course of a few days, it would spit back to us information. And over the course of a few days? What kind of laptops were these? What kind of search engine over the course of a few days? Is there just somebody on the other end being like, oh, here's a good email. Here's a good email. Here's some emails. Like, what do you mean over the course of a few days? What came out of that was a number of stories that 
depending again on how you look at it, were either enormously important bombshell confirmation of what a number of or of what a lot of people in the country had thought was actually going on on Twitter or what they denied. And if you're on the other half of the country, and again, I'm being crude here, it was, you know, nut picking, uh, yes. cherry picking. It was finding. Well, was I just question who even let you decide what cherries you were allowed to pick. Like her description of this makes me even more skeptical now. Elon's like, here's a couple computers. They'll, they'll search things. You'll get your results in a couple days. Get out of here. Sort of searching for anecdotal stories that would confirm the political biases of the independent journalists involved in the project. I think the really, really important thing for people to understand, and I think that this wasn't explained well enough by any of those of us who were involved, is how unbelievably laborious these searches were and how if we had the choice, like it's not as if we walked into a room with organized files according to COVID, masking, myocarditis, the election in Brazil, Modi, Israel, Palestine, mm -hmm. like then we could- Right, but if you were doing reporting on this, maybe the first thing you would do is gather information and start categorizing it. Yeah, like a big- Get a bigger picture of what was going. Get the fuck out of here. I don't even care about Hunter Biden's laptops. Now I want to know about Elon Musk's two laptops that he let these people use. What were they connected to? Who decided what they had access to? Could have really told you the comprehensive story. Instead, we had to make some very difficult choices based on the kind of tools we were using to go looking for certain stories where we knew the public story that had been told and we wanted to see what had actually gone on behind the scenes. And again, in my view, you know, the story of the decision to kick off Trump, very important story. Is it the number one story that was interesting to me? Not at all. COVID was far more interesting to me. But I knew that if we looked at those set of dates that we could come out with that we could come out with some information that would be worthy of the public interest. Um, and we also knew that we're dealing with someone who is in many ways a mercurial person. You know, any source that gives you information has motivation. You have no idea when their motivation or incentives might change. And so we wanted to harvest as much information as we possibly could in the days that we were there. Mm. The problem is, is that the person whose motives you're questioning is also the one who uh, fucking, uh, uh, so far as I can tell, gave you the laptop to do your fucking search on. Yeah, I hadn't thought to talk about these details, but uh, now I'm interested. So I just took a couple of follow-up questions. So when you, when you would perform a search or have someone perform a search for you, there wasn't some layer of curation from lawyers or anyone else who was telling you, who were deciding what could be released and what couldn't be released. If you said, give me every email that contains the word Trump between certain dates, they just spit out those emails? No. The answer to that is, I don't know. Right. The honest answer to that is, I don't know. One of the ways that I knew that, Sam, I just don't know how much detail you want me to get into here, but one, one of the, in the first few days that I was there with my wife, Nellie, who also works with me and building the company, Matt wasn't there. It was just the two of us, Elon Musk and lawyers that we were communicating with over the phone. And I would ask them to do a search, let's say, for COVID or cloth masks or Fauci or whatever. And what I was getting back was garbage information. 
it was such garbage information that it, and I'm not a paranoid person. I would say Michael Schellenberger is way more suspicious than I am in general. I'm pretty naive, but it was so bad that Nellie was saying, this cannot be right. This cannot be right. And that's when I came to discover that the lawyer who was actually doing the searches worked for Twitter and was one of the people that we were hoping to do searches on, which is this guy, Jim Baker, who became a sort of flashpoint in the story. Later on, and maybe Michael, I can hand it over to you if you want to explain sort of the mechanics of how this worked. The reason it can be maybe a little boring. The reason I think it's significant is because I think it will help people understand why we did the stories we did. Right. Right. Yeah. Michael, jump in here. What was your experience? Extracting information yeah. from Twitter. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really fun conversation. I love I love talking about it. And I was a little annoyed after that that just a lot of people wrote stories about how they thought the process worked without just asking us because we would have said so. And I've always have taken all the time to explain it. But But now we're just taking your word for it. Like that's the problem. Like other people were trying to do journalism about the Twitter files and he's like, Well, this isn't very nice. They weren't even they didn't come to me to get their story. It's like, well, yeah, that's not how that works. If somebody's doing a critical story or trying to get the bottom of what was happening with this supposed reporting, maybe they don't talk to you or maybe they do all of their reporting and then they ask you for comment after they've done all their reporting. Maybe they catch you in a lie or something or get you to reveal something they didn't know and it could put send them in another direction where they can get new, new information. Like, what do you mean? Are they... You want other journalists to make the same mistake you're making where you just go to one one source for the information? I mean, their source was Elon and whoever Elon said was going to help them search for the information on the computers. Elon uh, told them they could use. And so now you think like now, like if let's say Kara Swisher was going to do a story on this, is she supposed to just go to Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger and just do her whole story based on what uh, Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger say? Get the fuck out of here. Like, this isn't how, this isn't how, this isn't how journalism works. This is like rumors. Mentioned, um, Barry brought me in. I do not have a relationship with Elon Musk. I've only criticized Elon Musk in the past. Um, I criticized him in Mother Jones. I wrote about him in Apocalypse Never. And just obviously when Barry was like, we can get access to the Twitter files, I was like, hell yeah. I mean, there's no, for me, there was no, just, it's a, uh, chance to go and get this incredible information. I met when I met Elon, he said he did not know who I was, I, you know, and and basically it's just like what Barry said, if there was any filtering or curation or removing of any emails, we saw no signs of it. And I would be shocked because the size of the searches we were getting, I can just tell you some of them, we would be like, you know, a lot of like you know, all the emails for this person over this period of date and we would get you know, email boxes of 2,000 emails, 890 emails, 2,000 emails, 1,800 emails, 1,800 emails, 2,300 emails. So it's just for somebody like we, I consider myself an extremely fast reader and I'm able to process a lot of information very quickly. It took me a very long time to go through these emails. I couldn't see anybody being able to have done that. And then when the emails populated in our inboxes. Well, but what if, what if there wasn't just one person on the other end helping like construct the narrative like i don't know maybe they got unfettered access to the emails but maybe they didn't and we're just we can't know because they they're like oh well here's the information we got from the elon musk approved laptops <laughs> they're like that's it done no more we're not gonna do any more checking on this that we never saw any evidence that anything had been removed 
I don't think anybody, I, I mean, it, I'm not saying, I, I can't prove that nothing was, but I just saw no evidence for it. And I didn't see anything in Elon that suggested that he cared about that. Although, Michael, it sounds like that cuts against what I was understanding Barry to be saying, which was initially the search results were so crappy that you thought somebody, this nefarious lawyer, was throttling the results. That was before, I I should clarify, that was before Michael had gotten there. And as soon as Elon found out that that person was involved, he... Okay, so the process changed. He's operating at the highest level of the company. He had... Until I told him, hey, do you know that Jim Baker is the one doing the search? He had no idea that Jim Baker was the one doing the search. Right. Then the, 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 the people involved change. He was fired. And like Michael said, the files we got subsequent to that, there was no evidence at all that they were tampered with. The thing I should- Wait, wouldn't, no, wouldn't, a, wouldn't a, like a general search give you a bunch of garbage you don't want? Like a general search through like emails? at a massive corporation, wouldn't you get a bunch of garbledygook and bullshit you don't want if they weren't being curated? Now all of a sudden Elon changes the people and the results are giving you exactly what you want? I know she said she was naive like a little bit ago, but that's, come on. I mean, she, they're, 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 talent, they're, they're giving away the game here. That is one of the, one of the criticisms of the story of the Twitter files is that we focused an inordinate amount on a person who had been at, at one time the head of Twitter's trust and safety, this guy, Yoel Roth. And the reason for that is that Yoel Roth was a very loquacious person. He- the reason for that is after Elon Musk got rid of the, the first lawyer, we kept getting all this stuff about Yoel Roth when we were searching things. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Talked a lot on Slack and on email and another place. Well, he was the head of trust so and safety. Yeah. Interested in other people. It's just that, you know, like any story, you're looking for the person who's going to share the most information. And he spoke openly and a lot on platforms like Slack to his colleagues. Did you reach out to Yol Roth for comment and say, like, Yol Roth uh, disputes the this or Yol Roth believes that some like, no, no, you didn't. It's not like we were actively going out to interested in Yoel Roth. I barely knew who he was before I walked into Twitter. Right. Now, were either of you concerned about the optics of this process that you would appear to be, at least in part, doing PR for Elon uh, rather than actually engaging in in journalism that was, you know, of a more normal sort? Like now, baby, it's about the clicks, baby. Releases had to be done on Twitter itself, uh, which I think it could be argued was not the best platform for actually discussing this and really anything at length. Yeah, I mean, what were your concerns going into this and, and is there any residue of those concerns? Not for me, really. I mean, for me, it was just like, He's like I'm a hack. I'm not concerned about this stuff. And I just am not. I mean, people say things, but I'm just not, I'm not that concerned about it. But for instance, I, what I noticed before I left Twitter, I mean, I have to admit now that I'm no longer on Twitter, I don't consider myself even minimally informed about what it's like there now. But when I was there and the first drops were happening, more or less everything Elon said about what was coming and what had dropped was wrong, right? I mean, he was lying or just delusional about what he was releasing, you know, the level of government But he wasn't releasing it. So isn't that kind of the point? But it was isn't the frame it? around it. I mean, he was- Wait, saying, he was releasing it. You, 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 and a little bit ago, you said that he- like that they gave you laptops that you could. And, and, and his summary of what Taibi no, was saying was, was just not, in fact, accurate. 
In fact, it was the in the case yeah, of I one mean, of Taibi's drops, it was the opposite of what Taibi said. Yeah, I mean, so I, that didn't I, bother uh, you at all. I'd, I mean, it bothered me when he tweeted, "My pronouns are prosecute Fauci." It bothered me when he no, said that thing about Yoel Roth. I've I told him that you know we I, we've I think Barry criticized Elon when he deplatformed those journalists. I retweeted it. We don't control Elon Musk. I mean, we were invited. No, he controls you. Smash and grab situation to be able to look at as many emails as we could. And we're thrilled at it. And it's super important what came out of it. But no, I mean, I just kind of, I'm a big Gen Xer. I'm a breakfast club type. I'm a big Gen Xer, a breakfast club type. Get the fuck out of here. What does that even mean? I'm a big Gen Xer, a breakfast club guy. I'm Generation X and I've seen the breakfast club. Talk to Tucker Carlson. I talk to people that my family thinks it's terrible. I talk to them and I don't believe I'm not, I don't have like a view that if I talk to somebody that somehow I'm legitimizing all of their views or that if I go take these, if I go and like look for these emails that somehow I'm agreeing with Elon Musk, I've criticized Elon Musk about his policies around solar in China. I'm not going to stop doing that. I told him because you're against solar and have told him exactly what I thought. And I'm just with Elon the way that I am with everybody. And so, no, I mean, and people talk shit, but it's like, I don't like people say things, but they're not true. So I can't, I'm going to have a stoic attitude about it, which is like, oh, he's a stoic now. The things that I do, I'm not a big red flag. Other people do. I just, I just think that this is as old school as it gets. Like a source had documents that he wanted to leak to the public. But the source was the owner of the company that you were supposed to be reporting on. That's like not a good source. And journalists who felt those documents were in the public interest jumped to go look at them. And any source who leaks documents or leaks a story to the New York Times or the Washington Post always has an agenda. Like that goes without saying. I think the unusual thing in this case is that the source was public about it and he made his agenda entirely transparent the entire time. So, like, and, you know, as, as Michael just mentioned, I, I think I well proved that I was not in the tank for anyone on this matter. I'm just on the side of the public knowing. Well, maybe you were just a useful idiot then. I don't know what to tell you, Barry. Themselves whether or not that information was in the public interest, I certainly think that it was. And I frankly think a lot of people are resorting to sort of criticizing journalistic practice or, you know, standing in or other sort of like. Okay, so that okay, if you were criticizing journalistic practice, who was your editor? Did you have fact checkers? Calities of that sort, because they don't want to confront what the actual story is. Right. Well, I, well, yeah, I definitely want to get to the story, but Renee, I want to bring you in here. Do you have anything to say at this point about just the process and the optics? Yeah, it's very interesting. So, I um, for you know your audience members who probably don't know, I started off talking about social media, kind of as an activist on the outside in 2015, moved into academia in 2019. Uh, and in the intervening time, the relationship between platforms and government and researchers changed very significantly over those four years. We can talk about why and how, perhaps. I was part, you know, I, I'm at Stanford Internet Observatory. We, we are, were, I don't know, part of something that was called the Twitter Moderation Research Consortium that I think no longer exists because everybody got laid off. But it was a process by which Twitter could actually share data sets with researchers. And this is relevant because we did all of our research was done independently 
we would receive data sets from Twitter, we would do research independently. And sometimes we would actually go back to them and we would ask, why is this account included? Why is this? This doesn't feel like it fits. If we're going to tell a story to the public about this- boo, 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 you didn't boo, you didn't just take the data that Twitter gave you and be like, well, this is the whole story. Boo, you idiots. Boo. Why'd you go? Why'd you go try to confirm things? Boo. <laughs> this Chinese network, this Iranian network, this Saudi network, this Russian network. We want to make sure that we're doing an independent analysis and we are only going to, to say what we think we can support as researchers. And what we would try to do was look at and enrich the story with as much of a full picture as possible. So the Twitter data set was almost a jumping off point to a significant process that would involve also looking for these accounts on Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, you know. You- boo, boo, boo. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Just you, kidding. You this all, this, this and- person is, they're like, this is what you do. You get this information. Then you go do other reporting, or in this case, because this is academia, we'd call it other research. You go do other research. To try to figure out if you can confirm this stuff, see if the same patterns are happening elsewhere, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I understand that Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger are like, we got the laptops that uh, Elon gave us. And we, what we would try to do was not tell an anecdotal story, but we would always include both the qualitative, you know, here is what these accounts are saying, here is what we think they're doing. But we would try to include something in the way of summary statistics. Here is how many of them there are. Here is the engagements they're getting. Here is where they are situated in the public conversation relative to other accounts that talk about these things. And the reason for that is because one of the problems that I think has been, you know, one of the problems with a big driver in the public conversation around content moderation, whether that's related to the kind of foreign influence campaigns or domestic activism or anything else, is that it is so anecdotal. And so when the Twitter files began, as somebody who has worked with platform data and also, you know, testified in front of Congress critiquing platforms, and their lack of transparency, and who has written about that for the better part of seven years now, what, what has been interesting to me in the files, I think, I think they're very interesting just to kind of to start with that. I, I, I'm not a, a person who says, oh, this is all a nothing burger. This is not interesting. But I had kind of three issues with the process. And the first was that I think a lack of familiarity with that, that multi-year evolution of content moderation policy meant that for me as an observer, there were some of these like wet streets cause rain moments, you know, the Gelman amnesia phenomenon where the person doesn't fully understand what is happening in context. A specific example that I, that I said on Twitter was uh, one comment in which you see the Senate Intelligence Committee engaging with Twitter, asking it if it responded to some sort of tip from the FBI. And that was very interesting to me because I had done a bunch of work on Twitter data for the Senate Intelligence Committee in 2018. And as a researcher running that process in 2018 with no engagement with Twitter whatsoever, what I knew was that the Senate Intelligence Committee did not have very high confidence in Twitter's ability to find anything. So reading that interaction was fascinating to me because they were, in my opinion, essentially saying, did you find this yourself or did somebody have to hand it to you again? But what the reporter who wrote that thread construed that as was, are you taking direction from the FBI and marching? So this was the kind of wet streets mm. cause rain experience that, that I had in a number like of her. threads where I thought, gosh, I wish that somebody who had either been there, you know, in, a, in an abstract sense, not in the company, but who understood the evolution of that stuff had perhaps like weighed in or, or been consulted. And then I think the second critique was, the, was how anecdotal it was. And, and that made it feel a little bit cherry picked. And this kind of ties into maybe point three, which is that the <laughs> trust and the public confidence in whether or not you believe in an, a framing around an anecdote 
is entirely dependent on whether you trust the reporter or the outlet at this point. And that's a function of polarization in American society. It is not a critique of Bari or Michael or anybody else who's your thread. It is, I think, the reality. And so with some of the, in my opinion, overemphasis on anecdote, and, and I recognize, you know, this is the process, this is what you had available to you. What made that troubling to me is that it did feel like there were opportunities for score settling and things or searching for things that you, you know, that, that a particular reporter found problematic or wanted to dig more into, but that didn't necessarily get at the scope and scale of the phenomenon overall. And I'll point specifically to something like shadow banning, right? Fascinating topic. Lots of, you know, <laughs> many of us have looked at it over the years and made arguments that I don't think it's something that the platforms shouldn't be able to do. And we can talk about why, but I do think it should be transparent. So that's, that's sort of where I sit on the shadow banning question. But what we didn't get was how many users were receiving these labels, in what country, during what time period, how many of those who received a label were mentioned in a government request. That's absolutely kind of crucial to this question of what, to what extent does the government actually exert influence over the platform. It's not simply filing a report, it's did the report lead to an action? And this is the sort of thing, again, maybe this is my bias as, you know, as somebody in academia, where I say, like, God, I'd really love to get my hands on the summary stats. You know, can this is my bias as someone in academia. Yo, she's trying so hard not to dig at fucking the other two guests, but this is all digs at the other two guests. Good for her. My bias is an academic. Her job was to like comb through data and verify and like do other, basically other research, other, other checking essentially to see if like the patterns they thought they saw from what they were given, like bear out in real life. Like that's, that's the step that's missing from what <clears throat> Barry and uh, Michael have done here. They just took the, what they were given and were like, here's the story. Fucking sloppy ass, lazy ass shit. Request those. <laughs> can you say like in this moderation tool, you know, can we connect the dots here between here's the FBI over submitting, in my opinion, litanies of accounts, you know, really just sort of stupid process. But then what happened next? And, and that was like the, the kind of connecting the dots there was, in my opinion, kind of underdone, candidly. And it led to an opportunity for innuendo to drive the story. And whether or not you believe the innuendo is entirely dependent on whether you believe or trust the outlet and the person covering the story. So in the interest of informing the public writ large, that's where I felt like, you know, and as Barry notes, you, depending on, I think we're saying the same thing which side of a political spectrum you sit on, you either trust or do not trust at this point. I don't know that it's political spectrum so much as like, you know, institutional populist, maybe. Exactly. Right. No, 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 no. The problem is, is that, uh, Elo okay. So <clears throat> this would have been interesting had, let's say I was able to comb through this information. I don't have the tools available. I'm not good at it. Right. But if I'm able to comb through it, everybody's able to comb through it. So like data scientists, Social scientists, computer scientists, people just with different backgrounds that are capable of like parsing this data to figure out what's going on in there would all be able to parse it. And then you would have like different reporting from different outlets and you'd be able to kind of, and then eventually maybe some kind of consensus would form around some of the key issues. But what's happened, what had happened here, what had happened was is that uh, Elon just cherry-picked journalists, and we'll use the word journalist kind of loosely here because I don't think uh, Michael Schellenberger is a journalist. Barry Weiss, I mean, she did work at the New York Times and the, and the, um, the, the Wall Street Journal, but 
when you just cherry pick the people who are going to like drive the narrative, that just undermines trust in the narrative just more broadly, I think. But, but there is, I think that that tension for me was, was it, it was where I felt, and, and I wrote this in the Atlantic that I felt that there was a little bit of a missed opportunity there. How could we perhaps get at more of those like holistic or systemic views informing an opinion of platform moderation that are less anecdotal and less dependent on trust in a reporter's narrative. Right. Yeah. I mean, just to echo part of it, it's hard to capture kind of like how chaotic the situation was. I mean, it was like getting searches back at midnight, working till three in the morning, the owner of Twitter coming in at 1230, wanting to schmooze. Like, you know, I- yeah, These should all be giant red flags. What do you mean getting data? I thought you could just search the data. I thought you had access to it. Why now did it now? Why now did something show up at midnight? And then you had to work on it till three and then go schmooze with the, the fucking owner of the company you're supposed to be investigating at noon or 1230. What the? Come on. These should all be like huge red flags. I could everything Renee say. Like I, meaning on the question of should these platforms, not just Twitter, be more transparent? Do we have a problem? with private companies that have sort of unaccountable power over the public conversation? And to what extent are they, you know, doing the bidding of organizations like the FBI? Like, that's something really important that every citizen has a right to know, not just me and Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi. But I just can't emphasize. Great. Then you should, if you were, if you know what, you could have, you could have said, I would love to work on this, but you need to make this data available to more people. You need to make this data available to, I don't know, like the Associated Press. You need to open source this data, you know, three months or whatever. Let, let me have the scoop. But afterwards, you need, to, you need to put this data out into the public exactly as I got it. Or I'm not doing your fucking story. Like, oh, oh, you're, she's giving away the game here. That the idea of going in and saying, give me a report or a summary on XYZ. That just wasn't something that was mm. possible while we were there. Okay, well, let's get to what was found out or uh, what has been found out so far. Well, the problem is we, I don't know what we found out because as they described it, there was, a, there was a process where even though they were inclined to like Elon because he was hooking them up with a story that was going to make them money, Elon was clearly manipulating these people. Or, or Twitter, the new, whoever's the new management team at Twitter, the new legal team at Twitter, whoever it was, was clearly manipulating these people. I guess as preamble, I, I just want to say, I think the big story here, which is certainly beyond the case of Twitter, is um, our ongoing struggles to deal with misinformation. And this is something that Renee obviously knows a lot about. But um, it seems to me that this is the kind of thing that may never be perfectly solved in the absence of your just perfect AI. And when you look at what imperfect solutions will look like, they will always throw up both type one and type two errors. So, you know, any attempt to suppress misinformation is going to suppress real information, and that'll be embarrassing and cause some people to be irate and to allege various conspiracies. And it also, you know, it will fail in, in the other way, and lots of misinformation will get through and fail to be suppressed. And this isn't merely just an, an engineering question. This is a, it's an ethical question. It's a political question. And even in the simplest case where we know what is true and what matters and what we should do on the basis of these facts, 
and we're, I would say we're very rarely in that situation at this point. But even in the best case where we know what's true, it can be very difficult to know what to do in a political environment where great masses of people believe crazy things. It's a question of how to message the truth in hand to great numbers of people who, as we've already said, no longer trust certain institutions or certain people and will um, reach for the most sinister possible interpretation of events and you know, anchor there. And our, you know, that seems to be the, the state of discourse we have on more or less everything from public health to the very topic we're talking about. So uh, with that as just kind of the frame around this, perhaps um, Barry and Michael, you know, either of you can start. I'd love to know what you think we have learned so far and what has been the most interesting slash concerning facts. I'll say maybe one thing and then kick it to Michael. I think that there are two main stories here. Story number one is about the way that an extremely powerful tool that has influenced elections, that has led to revolutions, claimed to have a particular mission, and gaslit the public as it secretly abandoned that mission in critical ways. And Yo, if you go on any of these fucking websites and the website has ads, those ads are the mission, baby. That's it. The ads are the mission. That's it. That's the whole mission. Sorry. Don't, even, don't want to burst your bubble and give you a simple answer. That's the mission of Twitter, mission of Facebook, mission of Instagram. To serve you ads. And the next step would be like you click or tap on that ad and it converts into a sale for that company. And then that company is more, more inclined to buy more ads on your fucking service. That's the mission of these companies. This isn't some altruistic fucking free speech shit. I don't give a fuck if that's what Jack said Twitter was fucking a few years after it started. That wasn't the mission. Jack was running that country company on venture capital at the time. You know what his mission was? Returns for the investors. We need a poor job of that. It shouldn't matter what your politics are. Like that to me is a really important story. If you believe as I do, you don't need to go all the way and believe that Twitter's a public square to believe that has an enormous influence on the public conversation, on deciding who is a hero and who is a villain on, on any number of things. The second thing that I think is the headline story is the way that this sort of very close relationship between the federal government and one of the most powerful tools of communication in the world. I think those are kind of, new? kind of like the two core Born tomorrow that came out of all of the reporting. I don't know if we're on Twitter files number 121 or whatever, but those, those to me are the, are the two biggest headlines. And, and, Michael, and around, you, around which topics, yeah, wh which topics do you think I mean, you're most concerned about the messaging around COVID or Hunter's laptop? What do you consider to be the center of, the, of gravity here? On the cultural, I'll leave the government conversation to Michael because he did much more on that. To me, it's the way that Twitter actively narrowed. We can, I don't know if we want to get into Hunter yet, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, I certainly think that when a private company decides to lock out a newspaper doing truthful reporting weeks before an I, election. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to bog myself down in this too much. Usually I'm telling my co-host, <coughs> let's not get bogged down in this. If you go back and read the original Hunter Biden laptop story. Go find it and tell me you can make any sense out of the fucking story. 
on the gr- on the spurious grounds that it was based on hacked material, as if that isn't what is printed in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post every day. Yeah, I have a huge problem with that. Hmm. But I think one of the core things that came out of what we what we saw, especially in the the shadow banning of people like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, was the way that it people inside Twitter actively worked to make things untouchable, to make people untouchable, to make particular viewpoints that have turned out. But all this time that she's claiming Jay Bhattacharya was being like suppressed by these institutions, Jay Bhattacharya, like I, you never even heard his name before he started fucking lying about COVID and the vaccine and fucking um, what they call lockdowns. This doesn't track with what actually happened. To be very vindicated, untouchable, and therefore profoundly shaped the public conversation about something like COVID and the right way to respond to it. Mm. I think that is a really significant story. Michael? I would say there's three areas. I would say the first had to do with the crackdown on misinformation bleeding into a crackdown on uh, free expression, which I think you alluded to, Sam. And I'll give I'll give one big example, which is Facebook under pressure from the White House, censoring accurate information, emailing the White House to say, we are censoring this accurate information because we view it as encouraging vaccine hesitancy. What information? Now, they didn't exactly black it out. It was a they repressed the spread of it, but it is a form of censorship. Hmm. Twitter did a milder version. Right, but the, the problem here, the missing thing is, what is the piece of information? I bet he's talking about fucking ivermectin. I bet he's talking about ivermectin. This with Jay Bhattacharya and, and with Martin Kildorf, who just simply said, not everybody needs to get the vaccine. And they put an interstitial on it, which is a kind of like warning thing saying... Official Twitter censors say that this is not. No, it's not official Twitter censors. That's not. Twitter was just getting the best information they could based on like the scientific and medical consensus around vaccination. <clears throat> Especially at the beginning of the pandemic. But fucking, we got all kind of shit wrong. Remember when everybody's wiping down surfaces because we didn't know that the, the virus was mostly airborne? I ain't mad at whoever said, well, maybe we should wipe down the surfaces, wash our hands a little bit more, try to see it, because we didn't know. Like, there doesn't have to be some fucking conspiracy for you to get some shit wrong. This is not right. Um, That was a case where, uh, in the case of Kildorf, he was expressing an opinion, and he is a Harvard medical doctor, not to stoop to credentialism, but he certainly- Wait, what was the opinion? What we're missing here is what are the things that were being said? Because I am actually for, if you're going to attempt to stop misinformation on the internet, I am for stripping away the identity, essentially, of who is spreading the idea and just looking at the information and deciding accordingly. You would think that that's what these people would be for, too. But apparently what they want, what they're saying is, well, this is a person who is uh, Harvard, and so they should uh, actually have um, get some privilege here. Even though they're, they would they would later probably say that our uh, academic institutions have failed us. So this this is all this is all bullshit. This is all like chemtrails. This is all the arguments about chemtrails. It's no different. Oh, there's a person who used to be a work at the Air Force who is here telling you about chemtrails. It's like, well, I don't care where they used to work. The chemtrails thing is stupid. 
I think, had a right to weigh in on that question. And then in the case of Facebook, there was no transparency here. And I should actually pause and just say, however much we disagree on many things, I've had the pleasure of being able to have an ongoing conversation with Renee over the last few weeks. And we all, we both very strongly support transparency. That I think I agree with Renee. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But wait a minute. Transparency isn't, isn't the, the fucking owner of a company gives you access to a laptop that Trust me, you can search whatever you want on this laptop in this room during this time frame. Trust me. That transparency would solve the opposite of transparency. If Facebook had simply done, if there was something, somebody said that Facebook said, we are suppressing these views because we are encouraging vaccines and we're going to allow this debate on it in some way. This is no, no technical obstacle to allowing that to occur. So that's one. Number two is the laptop. Which one? The one that Elon let you use? Or are you talking about Hunter's laptop? Because now we got three laptops that I'm really concerned about in this story. One of them is Hunter's, Hunter's laptop, just because I don't even know what that story was all about. But the second, there's, there's two more now. It's the two laptops that Elon let these people access these files from, or whatever the fuck they said at the beginning of this. I want to know about those laptops. Is a very clear pattern of behavior. I cannot prove that there was an organized effort but nonetheless, I think that my thread on the Hunter Biden laptop shows that there was a very strange pattern. And again, maybe it was a total coincidence for both existing intelligence community officials and former intelligence community officials to pre-bunk the Hunter Biden laptop. And we can get into pre-bunk the details it? of this, but I th- suffice it to say, I think it merits more investigation. I strongly support congressional investigation on it. I don't think we've gotten to the bottom of it. I find it extremely suspicious. Hmm. And I think other people do too when they really- I find it extremely suspicious that most of the people in the United States intelligence apparatus are uh, singing the same tune about uh, some kind of hack that they think may have something to do with national security. You find that curious? All right. I think that's just the status quo, baby. Got it. And again, maybe it's maybe I'm overly pattern recognizing here. I hold that as a possibility, but I think there's there's something really interesting there that has to be talked about more. And then the third thing is just this grotesque inflation of the threat of Russian influence operations. It was being used as a way, as a cudgel to basically start to Deplatform, deamplify, censor, demonize, disparage, discredit people that did not deserve that. That's sort of what Matt talks about today. And and I thought Renee over email we had a there was an exchange about this, but it's not it's not just a single thing. I mean, it was being used as justification for all sorts of things. I don't remember Russian like hacking being used as an excuse for all that many things. Um I just don't remember that being the case. I remember hearing very little actually about um, Russian or even just foreign influence campaigns during the, uh, during COVID. And I monitor what I would call influence campaigns. I don't know if they're foreign. I think Americans come up with enough influence campaigns on our own. But like one of the things we, we look at here is like campaigns of influence. They're usually via like conspiracy movements or like cult like groups online it would have crossed my like radar if a lot of people were saying that like during COVID or 
or even in the run up to the last election that there was a lot of um, Russian influence campaigns because it seemed like there wasn't for the 2016 election. It seemed all the countries are always trying to like propagandize each other and shit for their own means. But it seemed like it seemed like maybe the damage had been done to the extent that the damage was even done by any Russian influence campaign in the first place. And the maybe maybe if I was a, a Russian oligarch or a Russian president, I'd be like, we don't need to really spend any money on this. That country's good and fucked. I don't know. I know the fucking Hunter Biden laptop fucking story wasn't Russian fucking uh, propaganda. Russian propaganda is good and it works. And it's usually not just one story. It's like a collection of stories. And if we if we are to believe most of what we read about the 2016 election, most of it was actually trying to get people to take action, not to just to get them to believe something. Including censoring this laptop, it became a kind of boogeyman. And, you know, I think one one thing I wanted to do on this podcast and, and say very clearly is I do think that Yol Roth turns out to be a more complicated character than I think he had been perceived as in the beginning. Well, that's because your fucking pal Elon called him a pedophile. See him, he repeatedly would point out that various things were not violations, including the thing that Trump was deplatformed for. He said very explicitly that Trump had not broken, had not violated Twitter's terms of service, and they then worked to create a justification for deplatforming him. Same thing with the Hunter Biden laptop. They said that it had not violated Twitter's terms of service. They were very clear on this, and there was uh, there were other instances of it. Now, then, Yoel Roth was then hmm. uh, basically overruled by the people above him. So he was a good company man, but I don't think that the demonization of Yoel Roth that had occurred perhaps earlier in the process of looking at what happened at Twitter was fair. But I do think that this, you know, and I think mm. I mentioned him here in this context because he was the one that was often pushing back against the abuse of this Russian uh, influence operation. You mean it, w it wasn't fair when Elon branded him a pedophile in front of 120 million people? That was uh, no, that overreach. was obviously wrong. That was obviously wrong. Absolutely, hundred. I, I no hesitation. Ditto, in, obviously. In denouncing that. Yeah, I, I, I bet these two spent fucking zero seconds even saying this is terrible on Twitter. I don't know. They might have re they might have retweeted somebody that said it was bad. I don't give a fuck about Yoel Roth. So I felt real I, bad for the guy. Feel free to say whatever you want here, but I, I would love to get your take on the uh, Russian disinformation piece too. Yeah, sure. So I think that where I come down, and you know, Michael and I have been emailing about so many of these issues over the last couple of weeks. I, I really come down in a place where I feel like there are nuanced moments here. And as we as we talk about, for example, Yoel pushing back about against some of the things that happen, content moderation is the story of people trying to make decisions, the best possible decision in line with a particular policy that a company has written, and then some sort of sense of even-handed enforcement. You know, so you have the policy and then the enforcement. These are sometimes two different things. The policies, what, what you then have is people in the most high stakes, volatile situations trying to figure out what to do. So what winds up happening on Twitter, ironically, is that all of these things are reduced down to, do you think this person is bad? Do you think that decision is bad? If you think that's bad, obviously, there was some sort of malice behind it. And that, I think, is a flattening of what is actually happening. There is some interesting dynamics and uses of the word censorship that I've been intrigued by as we have moved through the evolution of some of those policies over the last seven years. And for just to just to help make sure the audience understands. 
content moderation is not a binary, take it down, leave it up. So that is the, I'll, I'll use Facebook's terminology here. They have a framework and they call it remove, reduce, inform. Remove means it comes down. Reduce means its distribution is limited. And inform means a label is put up. There is some sort of interstitial, you, you know, a pop-up comes up or there is a fact check under it or YouTube has a little like context uh, label down at the bottom of the video. Sometimes it'll take you to a Wikipedia article. So in that moderation framework, remove, reduce, inform, when something is reported, there's a policy rubric that says this thing may violate the content and then the enforcement, whether to remove, reduce, or inform, is based on some sort of internal series of thresholds. I am not an employee of these companies. I don't know what those are. So for me, one of the interesting things about the files has been seeing those conversations come to light. And my personal take on it, my interpretation has been largely that you have people trying to decide within the rubric of this policy what they should do. So there were a couple policies that I think are relevant to this conversation and, and what's just been said. The first on the subject of the Hunter Biden laptop was the creation of a policy following a lot of what happened with the GRU. There, so when we talk about Russian interference, I'll connect it to Russian interference for you. You and I spoke back in 2019 about the work that I did on a particular data set for the Internet Research Agency. So that is the sort of troll factory. When people think about social media interference and they think about trolls or bots, the Internet Research Agency is what they're thinking of. But there was another component to Russian interference in the election, which was Russian military intelligence hacking the DNC and the Clinton campaign and then releasing files at opportune times, for example, to distract or change the public conversation to make them cover these files. I think the first tranche, if I'm not mistaken, was dropped the day of that Access Hollywood Pussygate tape coming out, right? So um, the media is talking about Pussygate. All of a sudden, here's this tranche of secret documents media conversation changes. So this is a, you know, in response to things like this, and also to hacked materials more broadly, the platform implements a hacked materials policy that says, despite the fact that, again, journalists may have a particular point of view about how to treat hacked materials, the platform does not necessarily have to share that point of view, because sometimes hacked materials turn out to be sex pictures or nudes that are sitting on your phone or a variety of other types of private conversations that get dropped. So this policy covers things beyond, you know, the uh, contents of a wayward laptop from a presidential son. And so again, they're not writing the policy for Hunter Biden's laptop, they've written the policy, and then you see in the conversation them deciding whether and how to enforce it. And this is where the conversations with the FBI come into play. Again, no personal, you know, I, I felt like the enforcement on the Hunter Biden laptop by Twitter was quite foolish. I thought it, this is one of these, like the horse has left the barn, you know, you're doing more, you're creating more problems for yourself by trying to censor, particularly an article as opposed to the contents of the laptop mm. itself, right? There's one thing you can enforce your policy on hack material by taking down the nudes that were going up and saying that violates our terms of service without saying that also the New York Post article digesting the contents of the laptop violates the terms right. of service. This is where you see some of the debates about the enforcement there. But the actually just Renee, just, know, just to linger on that distinction, if I'm not mistaken, this was true when I last looked, but perhaps something has come out since Biden and his team never asked for the story to be suppressed on Twitter. Were they just asking about uh, the contents of the laptop, like nude photos of Hunter Biden to be so taken down? My understanding from when that Twitter files thread went out. So the problem is. This is a, one of those rubber meets the road inst instances where you have to kind of trust that the people doing the reporting got the information and that they, you know, on the other two laptops that we should be concerned about here. 
I and others went to the Internet Archive to go see what the substance of those tweets had been. And they were, in fact, nudes. Does that mean that they were all nudes? No, because, again, we have a very particular filtered anecdotal view of what happened with regard to those requests. You know, we're told the Trump campaign requested takedown, sorry, the Trump administration requested takedowns, the Biden campaign requested takedowns. And then we have a list of like four or five different tweets. And so that, again, is where depending on your your framing and your perception, this was either hmm. uh, egregious jawboning or somebody trying to get nudes taken down off a platform. But right. p- from what I have seen, it was it was the latter. But don't we think that the scandal was that the scandal was the fact that Twitter locked out the New York Post? Yeah, yeah. yeah and I, was, I'm, not, I'm not in any way saying that I thought that that was a good decision. That was what I meant when I said yeah. that the suppression of the article was bad. Facebook did something different. I don't know if you remember what Facebook did at the time. No, actually, they, they haven't become Mark Zuckerberg's stenographer yet. So you're going to have to wait on the Facebook files. Facebook actually used Reduce. And Facebook said, we are going to throttle the distribution of the story while we try to figure out what is going on here. Now, the question of is that throttling censorship is a subsequent label censorship is where we've really moved very, very far in our use of that term in the context of social media moderation, my personal feeling on that very strongly is that it, it was political. The first labeling is censorship articles began when Twitter began to fact check tweets by President Trump. It did not take them down. It did not throttle them. It put up a label, mm-hmm. a fact check. A, I think that's counter speech and contextualization. This is my personal view on it. But we began to see a again, a flattening of the conversation where remove, reduce, and inform were all contextualized as egregious overreach and censorship. And so where I come down on a lot of these questions is I recognize the complaint, I acknowledge that things were not handled well, and I ask, what do you want done instead? Yeah. If you do not want the label, if you do not want the reduce, and if you definitely don't want the takedown, then is the alternative simply a viral free-for-all at all times with every unverified rumor going viral and the public being left to sort it out. And I'm very curious about that, particularly because journalism is supposed to be about informing the public, a recognition that journalists themselves serve a filtering function, serve a fact-checking function. And you know, we can debate the, the, you know, whether that's partisan or biased or this or that, but there is, a, a, I think, a, a core belief at the center of the profession that there is such a thing as the best information that we have in this moment and how do we convey that in a particular information environment that's where i think a lot of my work has been but you know i'll i'll stop talking there because i think that the complexities of content moderation are too often viewed as right versus left takedown versus leave up they're really filtered through the context of the american culture war and this is a global platform trying to figure out you know what the hell do you do when modi's government requests a takedown you know this is a this is well, the, Elon would just Elon take it down. Elon just agreed to. Yeah, you just, you just <laughs> capitulate and hope no one notices. All right, so I just want to add something to what you said, Renee, because it's what people are reacting to. Is, so people are acting like they want just everything to rip however the algorithm sees fit, and any curation is nefarious. And yet we know we have an algorithm or a set of algorithms that preferentially boost misleading. They preferentially boost people like Sam Harris, Barry Weiss, and Michael Schellenberger. And injurious information. So the, the truth is always playing catch up to the most salacious lies. And if that's going to be the status quo, there's no way you build a healthy society and a healthy politics on top of that. So 
I think anyone who thinks about it for five seconds knows that they don't want that. And therefore, you have to get your hand on the wheel, at least a little bit. But that's what's going on here is that the the tension between those two is like a place where people can grift. Like, Sam, as he often does, I think, is missing the forest for the trees here. That tension, that that debate, that that this different versions of free speech and um, basically the property rights of these uh, of these platforms and these internet companies. Well, there's a bunch of fucking money to be made in there, especially if you are willing to pretend that you want the free for all anytime anybody that your audience likes suggests that they've been subject to content moderation. That's what's going on. That's like the real conversation here. Or at least as a cynic, I think that's the real conversation here. Hand is, is some other algorithm or it's, it's actual kind of the conscious curation of monkeys. You, you need to intrude on, on what, what we currently have built. And it comes back to how transparent those intrusions are and then what people make of those efforts based on their, our divided politics and our tribalism. And I think that the transparency piece is the, you know, the common ground and, and the area where we can actually move forward. There are, you know, Google has a interesting, tra- all the platforms have transparency reports. Most of them are aggregated stats. They're not particularly interesting. Google actually will say, here's a government takedown. Here's approximately the request. You know, here, here's what we received. Here's what they asked us to do. And then here's what we did. It's very, you know, very um, one sentence summary, two sentence summaries. But I really love that. I think of that as like, this is a best practice. But Google isn't moderating your conversations. Database, which does this for DMCA takedowns, which are usually companies, uh, sometimes others requesting uh, takedowns related to copyright violations. Again, here is the request. Here is the, um, you know, here's what we did. And I think that is an optimal path forward for saying you cannot have a wholly moderation free environment Every algorithm, just speaking of curation, has a weighting in some regard. There is no such thing as neutral. There is no, you know, even reverse chronological Mm. is a particular value judgment because they're weighting it by time. And you can see this actually quite clearly now on Twitter. If you look at the for you page, I think they're calling it, or, you know, for you versus following, you see different types of things. You can go and you can look at a chronological feed. You will see that for you is often bait, right? It's, It's the most, you know, kind of outrage inducing, you're going to go click into this, you're going to go fight with that person. That's great for the platform. The chronological feed is not necessarily as engaging. It's not necessarily going to keep you there. But it is a different mechanism for surfacing information. And so what we're ultimately talking about here is incentives. It is a system of incentives. It is a system of judgments. And that is in algorithmic curation, as well as content moderation. And I do think that the public does not actually understand the extent to which the extent to which an algorithm deciding to curate and surface something shapes their behavior shapes what they do next mm-hmm. and this is a thing that yeah, i feel like i'm like trying to scream it from the rooftops just saying it it's not just about is this person being censored is that person being censored it's actually what is being amplified and that is potentially the far more interesting question as we think about how to build a system that vaguely mimics a public square you know, I, I'm, I've run the simplest algorithm over here, which is to delete my Twitter account. And it's impossible to exaggerate the effect 
it has had on my mind and life not to be on Twitter. I mean, it's just... He's even more insufferable to a cocktail party now. When I have checked back on Twitter just to prepare for this conversation, I am just fucking aghast that I spent that much time there. It's a uh, a mortifying glance backward over the previous 12 years. <laughs> and uh, I mean, for, you know, even even the good stuff, it's for the same reason I'm not on TikTok now or some any of these other platforms, because it would just be a time incinerator. When I look back at my engagement with Twitter, it's amazing to me. And so there's something pathological about, uh, I think, every variant uh, on offer. And it's not to say that it would be impossible to build a social media network to everyone's benefit, but it, Twitter ain't it. And um, it's just very interesting to have unplugged. You know, I've done podcasts about Facebook without ever being on Facebook because it's, it's of enormous importance to society. It's you know, both what it does uh, appropriately and, and badly, and uh, hence this conversation. Michael, uh, do you have anything you want to insert at this point? Well, I mean, I guess the only, I, I, so I would say the three things I raised, which was the need for transparency and content moderation, because there is some amount of censorship of justifiable opinions going on and accurate information. That's kind of the big social media thing. The other two I mentioned, I think, really have more to do with um, FBI and do we think mm-hmm. it's an apolitical law enforcement organization? And the third, Wait, what? No, Wait, nobody thinks that the Russia threat, which doesn't is not specific at all to social media, but I think is extremely important because. We all know it's a, da- a terribly dangerous thing to underestimate a threat, but in fact, exaggerating a threat has v- very serious problems associated with it. Both the ability to abuse that, which we saw in terms of deplatforming, deamplifying people that were innocent, in other words, saying Russian influenced mm. as opposed to Russian. And I, I think that's that needs to be that we need to kind of get to the bottom of the FBI issue and the treatment of the of the Russian laptop and also, I think, have a real honest conversation. The treatment of Hunter Biden's laptop. I got to stop it here because we try to keep this show under an hour and a half. We went a little bit over. I don't think we're going to listen to the rest of this in the post game. I just have some takeaways here. Like, this, this Schellenberger guy is really good at sort of taking the conversation away from the fact that he was spoon-fed information by the uh, CEO of uh, the very company they were supposed to be investigating and bringing it to bigger questions about the FBI and possibly the the CIA or whatever and their involvement in feeding the stories to the media, uh, getting the media not to report stories, getting the media to slant stories a certain way, be it social media in today's age or be it 50 years ago and it's the New York Times. That's interesting. People have been doing reporting on that. You can find out information about that. Bad. They probably shouldn't be doing it, but every fucking country does it. And, but that's not really what they're supposed to be talking about here. The interesting person was Renee because she was like a, she's like some kind of data scientist. She does some kind of work, like academic work in the field. And I don't know, she was, you know, she took a couple, a couple digs at them and their work. Um, but I wish it would have just been an interview with Renee because she had some uh, interesting, interesting things to say there. Um, I guess that's it. I, I wish we would have gone over this earlier when the Twitter files were just happening. I feel like this is maybe bad timing on my part, but I knew that shit was going to be in the weeds and I just didn't want, I was just like dreading doing this one, but that's okay. It's gone off of my list now. Podcast listeners, people on YouTube. Thanks for checking out the intellectual dollar tree. The show is live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Pacific right here on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media. And you can support this project at Eplex 
dot store. This song here, once I pull it up, will be boomers. And when I come back, change the color of the lights, change the content of my beverage, and uh, the content will probably be just as infuriating.
If you like what we're doing at Echoplex and aren't into Twitch, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Echoplex. For $5, you can get every show from beginning to end sent to you as an MP3. Even the stuff we bleep out because it's too spicy for Twitch. Echoplex would not be where we are today if it wasn't for the community support we receive. Find out all the ways you can support the show at echoplexmedia.com slash support.